Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the middle of Blobside Like Technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going well, thank you Ed. I am uh, doing my best to push off the encroaching uh, SAD, as in all capitals, mm-hmm. um, and managing to do that by finally getting into Eastbound and Down. Ah, cool. Which is pretty wonderful and a really amazing example of how you can really tread a line with a character who's essentially a terrible person i Mm. also finished emily in paris (laughs) which i think might warrant its own episode but yeah still very much um daniel craig in knives out that's my (laughs) that's my main main takeaway from it but yeah it's definitely like autumn is is autuming to the point of almost becoming winter because the clocks go back in a couple of weeks here and Mm. you know the little kind of like really banal markers like rather than the big sort of meteorological ones but i did the washing up the other day and i went ooh, as i sunk my hands into the warm water and i'm like oh it's time (laughs) so yeah changing of the seasons how are you this weekend yeah i'm good i am also very much becoming aware of it being autumn because uh, it's now getting pitch black around like 7 30 ish around about this time of year and that to me it, particularly once the clocks go back it becomes like really apparent how late in the year it is for me because i this usually when i'm in an office as opposed to working from home that's like the thing that you shouldn't suddenly notice is yeah we're in this big office building with with big windows everywhere and you can see out and there's always this this like one week where it shifts from you finish at seven and you look out the window and you think oh there's still a little bit of light left it's still nice to you finish at seven and it's just like the entire world has descended into darkness and that you know i i don't tend to get like too much of a seasonal uh, affective disorder but that's like the one thing every year that just kind of makes me feel like oh man the nights really are closing in in a really kind of like palpable way for me in terms of trying to uh, stave off the the winter uh, i think the thing i've mostly been doing this week is uh, playing hades on the switch Ooh. which uh, it's a game that I've been really excited to play for about a month now. I think you and I talked about this offline, how uh, my the Joy-Cons on my Switch had started to get the dreaded drift, which basically means that it was registering inputs that weren't actually there, and it makes precise games impossible. And when I started seeing like videos and reviews of, of Hades, I thought, this seems like a game I would really enjoy, and also one that's probably really precise, so I'm going to send off and get those fixed. So they came back in fixed on friday my joy cons and then i downloaded hades and i've just been enjoying it so much it's such a fun game you know you play as zagreus the son of hades trying to escape from the underworld so you fight your way through all of these villains if you die you go back to the start and you know try and make your way back up again but the thing about it that's so compelling other than the fact that all the combat is like just so much fun it's such a good good feeling game is that they do a lot of really good stuff with the character work you know every time you go back 
to the underworld you walk around you talk to all these like mythological uh, creatures like you know hypnos the, the god of sleep or nyx the goddess of night or you know you can go and pet cerberus which is uh lovely and every time the characters will have some different interaction depending on what killed you on your run or what gods you encountered on your way up mm. and it does this really good job where you know for these kind of like run-based games usually there isn't a sense of narrative progression except for you know you get stuff to upgrade yourself and you get stronger and you get further and further in this one like even a run that's like wildly unsuccessful as some of mine have been still ends up with you feeling like you've made some progress because you've made some like connection with one of these people who you wander into into the underworld and some of the people you fight and kill on your way up you also meet there afterwards and it's really funny when you walk into like the the lounge of hell basically <laughs> and uh majera the fury is there and you talk to him it's like hey how's it going yeah that was good up there sorry hope there's no hard feelings <laughs> and it's like oh it's just it's just a really fun funny game and it's one of those games where as i'm playing it i'm just thinking about all the things it does well and i just find it like legitimately very hard to kind of like uh, 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 single out one thing to say oh yeah this is the thing it does best because it it's yeah. just does everything so well and i've really been enjoying it we'll go on to the news for this week and i think the the big news certainly in the uk was the announcement that the arts council of england are kind of giving out um uh, uh, subsidies to a number of organizations in the uk and venues and things like that to try and help them deal with the impact of the economic slowdown from the pandemic and places having to be closed or having reduced capacity and things like that and that's all to the good in the you know certainly in terms of what we were talking about last week where we were talking about the lack of support for the arts in the uk and how that's fundamentally very damaging particularly at a time like this but having said that one of the recipients of that funding got a lot of heat online and that was the organization uh, secret cinema who put on all of these kind of uh kind of like multimedia events based around classic films where you know people go and quote unquote watch blade runner by going to like a space that's been made up to look like you know la in 2019 you know fictional la in 2019 not just like normal la although that'd be fun in its own way mm. and i i've never been to a secret cinema event i've always thought they just sound insufferable and that it's a, like a really bad way to it's a really bad way to watch a movie and also a really expensive way to watch a movie badly so it's never really appealed to me but uh, i did feel it was like incredibly galling that they would get a million pounds to try and keep their operation going considering how niche that operation is how much it loses money as well like some of their financials are just like ridiculous in terms of how poorly you know they are able to keep themselves afloat and at the expense of a lot of organizations that are you know really struggling and could do with a bit of a boost at this time exactly ed there are also some not particularly distant connections with certain members of the incumbent government mm, yeah. <laughs> to the organization um charlie shackleton of formerly of ultra culture and a film critic and filmmaker summed it up really well on twitter sort of talking about well it's 60 pounds ahead for past releases like who is this money going to and in terms of an immersive experience you know what it's just all of these kind of you know probably a lot of freelance 
people who get you know hired for one gig and then let go and I mean it's all it just feels very gimmicky and Hmm. I'm not against immersive experiences and you know pre-pandemic it was that point where it was like, how are we going to actually get people out and watching films? But this is different. It's not getting people to the cinema. And I think honestly, like the cinema experience, people won't need bells and whistles anymore. Um, You know, just to be able to go to the cinema because it is relatively speaking, you know, compared to other art forms, even though, you know, inflation is pushing tickets up more and more, it's still a reasonably cheap night out. Mm, Yeah. And, for secret cinema to be <sighs> yeah i mean who who are their sort of base employees where is the venue and for it to come so hot off the heels after the cineworld closure announcement it just feels like another smack in the face to like all those people and and you know the, the number of comedy clubs and venues that didn't get any money mm. and you just think really this kind of fragmented organization in that it doesn't have a bricks and mortar base it doesn't have regular programming is getting this much yeah was oh yeah and uh you know every film twitter is a weird place ed you and i both know this mm-hmm. but every so often it's nice to see everyone club together and be like you are not the people who should receive this yeah exactly and i think it, it's good to kind of like draw attention to this sort of stuff because it, it, it kind of highlights the just the iniquity of a lot of these things like, like you say compared to like a comedy like a comedy club in like the north of england is of way more value to like the local community than what secret cinema do like secret cinema is a nice novelty but it's not like it's providing something for a large number of people or like a consistent thing or allowing people to get their foot in the door to work in an industry it's you know like you say this fragmentary thing where they're relying on contractors to put on limited time events and you know you'd much rather see that million pounds broken up into you know 10 installments of a hundred thousand pounds and given to you know 10 clubs or 10 concert venues or whatever Mm, absolutely in other news again kind of related to the pandemic there have been a number of uh, cancellations or more accurately unrenewals uh, uh, recently of shows that had been renewed for uh, future seasons but having to be cancelled because basically as as people have kind of dug into this these stories because of the exorbitant cost of covid preparation and precautions so uh, the two examples that were cited um that i saw cited were uh glow which was meant to have a fourth and final season on netflix but now isn't happening and on becoming a god in central florida the kirsten dunst starring show on showtime which uh was cancelled this week the same week they announced that dexter was coming back which uh was a a split screen that uh i and a lot of people found that deeply deeply uh awful (laughs) but um those those shows were both uh recent victims of the uh, unrenewal uh, trend and in both in this article that was going around people were saying you know that the cost of doing all that you needed to do to kind of make sure that a production is safe from covid in terms of testing in terms of you know ensuring that you can create a, a bubble and you know that you can kind of make sure everyone has ppe and everything like that were pushing 
production costs up by about three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand dollars an episode, which is pretty sizable for a show. Shows mm-hmm. they're doing like ten or twelve episodes, and that which have, you know, in some cases something like on becoming a god in central florida is like a fairly new show and even though it did sort of well i think it's kind of hard to then argue okay we need an extra five million dollars or whatever to make the show now or glow similarly a show that you know is is reaching the end of its life on netflix and you know for them probably feels like a pretty easy thing to cut unfortunately as a result uh you can definitely see why those shows would be cut but it, it definitely feels like deeply unfair to those those shows in particular but also in terms of the broader cultural you know discussion about peak tv and things like that you know this this sort of five six year period we've been in where so many shows are being produced by so many streaming services like this does feel like maybe this is the thing that ends peak tv because suddenly it's going to be uh, uh, networks and streaming services looking at their shows and saying which are the ones that are big enough earners for us to justify the extra cost of making sure that all of this stuff works. It's particularly sad for Glow because I think they had just one more series planned. Yeah, It wasn't like an ongoing thing. They'd all agreed that this was going to be the final series and Glow has done very well for Netflix um, in mm. terms of being you know again this the diversity the women in front of and behind the screen the sort of meta-textual narrative of how supportive all of the uh, players are with each other mm. and I feel icky that like it's the thing that stopped it was COVID preparations they're like oh we can't really be bothered to give you the money to make everyone safe so yeah. we're just going to stop stop it like I feel that that's a really poor way to treat people instead of being like look we'll give you one last series because that's all you're asking for <laughs> and make sure everyone's safe and, and go forward and, and leave it there and I think in terms of peak TV it's moving more into that sort of boom and bust then isn't it and it's almost a mirror of how film was about 10 or 15 years ago all of the kind of mid-level budget and and generally films that aren't genre or franchise right like it's it's sort of like the, the uh, i never know what portmanteau to go for but the dramedy the mm. the dark comedy which you'll find generally resting about that kind of budget line is being squeezed out and then we will just have you know the really big franchise high concept series and maybe a scattering of sort of cheaper stuff so it might be the end of peak tv but i think it's going to be the beginning of peak and trough tv where you have Mm. these kind of wild spikes between something like as massive as the crown like that's not getting you know i don't think the final series is going to get shut down because of COVID preparation and it's just wild in terms of who netflix decides to pick and choose and it's another nail in the coffin of how diverse and committed to these kinds of stories are Netflix because mm. you know as we've spoken about before Ed, you know Sensei got cancelled and and this week actually um the Netflix CEO spoke out about the cuties controversy just saying the film speaks for itself which yes it does but also that's kind of a it feels like corporate speak 
to sort of push the buck again and not actually owning up to any sort of responsibility in how Netflix didn't help at all and and in in terms of representing the film Mm. not allowing it to speak for itself and taking the story you know so i mean it might be the end of peak tv for netflix we'll see what happens in terms of like when amazon come back in in terms of amazon's originals um apple tv as well it'll be interesting to see how they play it um because Mm. again this is how netflix are handling it so is it going to finally burst netflix's model that's what i'd be interested to see Mm. and i think it also again kind of points to netflix having this this weird thing where they don't really once a show is not kind of getting them new viewers it becomes you know irrelevant to them so like even though glow has like a pretty vocal and decently large fan base and one who i think would be perfectly fine to keep their subscription for another year or so until they could produce another season yeah just immediately being like ah no we're gonna cancel it because uh we don't really want to worry about it whatever and that just feels like you know the the short-sightedness of this very you know algorithmic approach to making movies and tv shows where you're just kind of like ah you know we care about it for a few years and then we're moving on to something else whether or not they get a chance to finish out the story that they wanted to tell and clearly had an idea of where they were going if they were like yeah okay fourth season we know what we're going to do we know how we're going to end this Mm. and our final story this week was the confirmation that the mad max fury road prequel furiosa is in active development and uh, they announced that it's going to star Anya Taylor-Joy playing Furiosa, the character played by Charlize Theron in Fury Road, and will also co-star Chris Hemsworth and uh, recent Emmy winner Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, and that all sounds great to me. That's a great cast. I love Fury Road. I just rewatched it this week, actually, and was just blown away anew by what a fantastic piece of lean filmmaking that is considering just how kind of like huge and over the top it is and how well it moves and i'm just very excited to see george miller get to make uh, another movie after the small sort of small scale movie that he's working on currently which i think is currently in in a bit of limbo whilst uh, the pandemic is on but you know like i'm just very excited to see him return to that world and whilst i kind of feel like we don't really need a Furiosa sequel, uh, prequel because um, I think Fury Road stands so well on its own I am more than happy to see more in that world and to see what else he has in, in store for us I'm really stoked love a bit of George Miller I think partly, mm. and this is nothing against Anya Taylor-Joy in the slightest I think just in my head I, I just want Mackenzie Davis <laughs> <laughs> mm. I think I'm going to we do a wonderful job, but also I also I want Mackenzie Davis for the General Holdo um, prequel that you know we may never get from Star Wars. So. <laughs> but that's entirely my personal uh, personal opinion. Ed, it's great that we're getting more of Furiosa, and I think there couldn't be a more timely prequel uh, mm. for this character because the bit that will all always always gets me in fury road is when furiosa realizes the green place is you know gone in that kind of Mm. you know it almost elevates that sort of planet of the apes trope you know and that that raw pain and and kind of what fury road was warning us about at the time and and now what furiosa will have 
um, for us. I'm really interested to see. But yeah, I hope to see the green place. That's my, <laughs> and I'll be interested to see. I'll be interested to see Furiosa's mum as well. But yeah, I I love George Miller. I'm excited that this has been greenlit because hopefully it's how he wants to do it. Because I don't think you know yeah. it's several years on from from Fury Road, and I think maybe he's got something premise and an idea that he really likes and hopefully with people that he can that he doing it in the way that he wants to do it um so uh furiosa in the city (laughs) Um, (laughs) bring it on so we'll go on to our main topic for this week and it is uh one location movies this was inspired by the news a few weeks ago that uh, ben wheatley uh wildly prolific uh british filmmaker who just can't can't seem to stop making movies uh <laughs> announced that he has made a quarantine movie a movie very specifically about being quarantined and, and you and i were discussing how uh interesting that was and how it seemed like a good fit for him as a filmmaker because he made his name with his very very low budget debut down terrace which was a movie that took place pretty much entirely inside a kind of like a small uh council house that's being renovated in I want to say Bristol, uh, somewhere maybe, or like somewhere in the, the south of England. Yeah. And that got us thinking about movies that take place in a single location. And, and this also kind of like builds upon what we were discussing about last week in terms of like movies that feel different to us as a result of us of, of, of living in quarantine and lockdown for so long. And how, you know, there is something about movies that take place in a single location that feels very different uh when you know we have been living in a limited number of locations for the better part of a year at this point it's funny when you proposed this um topic to me ed because everything that immediately came to my mind was all of well uh, the majority of films that we discussed in the time episode Mm. and a few from this hits different as well um because it, it made me realize oh a lot of films that are in real time or play with time are offered in one place like particularly yeah. particularly real time films so i'm going to try not to um tread back over that territory too much but i will kick off by saying the invitation is mm. you know any opportunity i get to bring it up ed i'm seizing and it is just so spectacular that it is only in one location it is this one house the whole time you have the tiniest bit of i think it's basically the road on the way to the house is the only other location you have and yes there is like a slight there's a sort of flashback but you're still in the house and it's just mm. so stunningly claustrophobic and the way that you know not not to sound too uh, they came together but the house is a character itself um <laughs> and Tell you, me about it. <laughs> and you could argue that like even though Parasite does have more than one location. I think a lot of people just, it feels like a one location film because of how mm. um, incredible that house is too. And so instrumental in, you know, the, just the blocking and the movement and the levels and how it can look incredibly luxurious, but simultaneously incredibly clinical and quite sterile. Mm. And I think it's similar to The House and the Invitation as well, like how it manages to morph in the flashbacks from being somewhere that was a family home to something much more, well, threatening and 
more uh, it, you know as a site of imprisonment um, and something and something to escape I think it's still I mean we all know how much I love the invitation but particularly as a one location film there's few that beat it really yeah and I think it does a really great job of not falling into that trap that I think you can kind of have sometimes with one location movies where it feels you know cheap because obviously you know if you're filming in a single location or you're making a movie where there's a very limited number of sets cost is obviously a factor into it and I feel I think the invitation was made like very very cheaply and I think was very much a movie that Karen Kusama had to make at that level of budget because she hadn't made a feature film in quite a while not since Jennifer's Body uh, I think was the last film she had made since then and that you know these kind of things factor into I think a lot of these these movies that are made for with that kind of a limited scale and scope is like okay we need to keep the cost down the, the easiest way to do that is to set a movie in a place that is you know relatively confined but the invitation never feels like a movie that's cheap there is a, a richness to it I think she brings out the intensity and the intimacy of the whole thing really well so it never feels small it feels claustrophobic yeah. I feel like there is a a key difference between two of those in terms of like how you feel watching those movies you know like because like it's not it doesn't take much for like a movie to be set in one location to go from you know really intense kind of like intimate drama to like something that feels like a student film something where it's like yeah we filmed this in our flat because it's the one place we had access to uh not nothing against student films everyone has to start somewhere but um that's kind of like how i feel that some of the movies i had on my list that i'm uh less than thrilled about as movies such as uh richard linklater's tape which is a movie that has a great cast got three great uh, actors in it but it definitely feels like this kind of like little cheapo experiment that he did because he thought it'd be interesting to see oh what if we you know make a movie that takes place entirely in a hotel room and it's just these three actors kind of bouncing off of each other but that is a movie that feels small and, yeah. you know, and, the, 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 and part, part of that is also you know they did shoot it I think they shot it on like video as well to kind of really give it that kind of grimy low down feel but uh at a certain point that does kind of like work against the movie by making it feel you know cheap as opposed to oh this was a deliberate experiment yeah for sure and but that kind of experimenting is great but you have to work so hard to make it feel like a film and not recorded theater Mm, yeah because i think that's what the invitation does so well it is undoubtedly a film it is a cinematic experience you don't feel like you're in the room with those people the cinematography is absolutely stunning in kind of the depth of the everything feels like like the palette is like bruises you know it's all these like Mm. really deep dark kind of blues and browns and kind of neutrals and very muddy contrasted with the kind of sunniness and colour of the past and and I think it's all the more affecting for that but it's funny how in terms of single location films and trying not to make things like recorded theatre one of my favourite single location films is, yes, it's I, I, it's another thing I'm bringing up again uh, Swimming to Cambodia, John, mm. Jonathan Demme because that also feels incredibly dynamic, even though it is literally um, Spalding Gray sitting at a desk with a Mac and a glass of water. 
Um, but I think it's also key because there's no audience there. And that's really funny mm. in terms of looking at things through lockdown where because the audience isn't there, it feels intimate and more cinematic somehow than than yeah, than recording an audience response because then it would feel like recorded theatre. But there's something about it that still feels so cinematic and I think the non-diegetic sound and the and the effects really help with that. But yeah, it's because we don't we don't leave Spalding Grey what we you know, we jump about in terms of the story, but we don't leave him at his desk. Mm. And it's weird how that feels more cinematic than Grey's Anatomy, the Soderbergh movie yeah. kind of based on one of his uh, one of Spalding Grey's monologues, which does try to like jazz things up quite a lot with like lots of dissolves and things like that, and you know, kind of like the move of the camera, kind of being very active and jumping around and stuff. Whereas you know, I think Demi knew like, oh, this guy's very compelling on his own. I think we can we can you know carry the audience along just through you know his performance more so than you know necessarily needing to just kind of like try and jazz everything up. Mm. to kind of like jump off of the recorded theatre point that you made I think that you can sometimes get movies that I think work while still feeling like like recorded theatre but it kind of it kind of needs to be the right play so something like Sleuth which uh, I've always loved I think that movie is so much fun I really love seeing uh, the, the, the 70s version I should should uh, uh clarify um as opposed to the one from 2007 with michael kane and uh, jude law the the one from the 70s i think you know it's so much fun watching those two characters bounce off of each other the the play itself the script is so kind of like bouncy and playful and like really jumps around the kind of like the twist halfway through and then the twist at the end are both like just like ludicrously entertaining and there is just this like real sense of like okay you know it, it, it is it does feel like a film you know it does it doesn't have like a a locked off camera just showing you what the play would be like and you know they do try and make use of the kind of like uh opulent country house that the movie is is set in but for the most part it feels like oh i'm watching two great actors delivering like really great dialogue and clearly having a very good time of it and there is obviously value and uh, a lot of entertainment to be had from that even when you know at the end of the day you look at anything yeah they didn't really do much to kind of like break it out of the theater as, as, as people like to say but like sometimes you don't really need that sometimes it just feels a little bit distracting when someone takes a play and is like okay well this takes place mainly in like one or two locations so let's just have these conversations happen while people are like walking somewhere you know where it kind of feels like yeah you're you're trying to make it feel like more of a movie but all you're really doing is kind of adding busy work yeah for sure and like it depends on the play and also maybe the sort of the technique because it makes me think uh i also thought about dogville and how uh that's not you know it's not a play but it's using a very deliberately brechtian sort of setting like actual like it's Mm. staged it's all on a sound stage and the brutality of what happens behind closed doors and walls if these walls could talk but there are no walls there's just a chalk outline 
and I think that's really affecting and it still feels like a film mm, um, yeah. which again is this kind of I think it, I, I think it's interesting that it it is technically a one location film because the you know we, we don't leave that sound stage but there are the little kind of not quite the partitions but you know it's technically the village and this one mm. house but that's divided into rooms but we can see in from this kind of strange perspective at all points but you know it but yeah it feels one location as opposed to something like the white ribbon you know the hanukkah film which i still think mm. about oh god that stays with you which is also technically set in one village but because of the cinematic techniques it doesn't feel like it's in one place because you are in various different houses and all that kind of thing but yeah dogville still manages to feel like a film i don't know whether the voiceover has a lot to do with that as well Mm, yeah yeah that definitely is like one of those things that i guess you could do if you were if you decided to stage dogville as an actual play which would be incredibly difficult with the amount of space you would need but i guess it's something you could do um but in a in a um theatrical setting having someone kind of like standing off to the side and just narrating i think would feel um out of place in a way that it never does in a film like we're conditioned to think oh like oh narration constant narration is something that you know is just inherent to how some movies are told whereas in a play you just be kind of like this feels like a bit much yeah uh, unless it's the you know sung narration in like into the woods or something mm. another good example i think of a movie that definitely feels like a filmed play but i think works really well is robert oldman's secret honor which uh, is also a great one-man performance from uh, Philip Baker Hall playing Richard Nixon on the verge of resigning the presidency. And it's just like an hour and a half or two hours of him in his office, like ranting and raving and getting increasingly drunk and bellicose. And it very much feels like what it, what it was, which was um, a movie that... Robert Altman made with a bunch of his students at the university that he was teaching at at the time during this kind of like somewhat fallow period in his career post Popeye where he you know struggled to make movies on a big scale budget so he made a lot of these kind of like fairly low budget often adaptations of plays with you know whoever he could work with and this is one of the best of that kind of like run of movies because Philip Baker Hall is such a compelling character. Yeah. He really dig digs into the details of Richard Nixon, who himself was, you know, a very fascinating man. You know, terrible, of course, but you know, like a deeply fascinating figure of twentieth century American life. So, you know, hard not to make a compelling movie about him and just the intensity of being trapped in a room with him for that length of time as he kind of unravels works really really well and i think you know the ability of the camera to really get in close and provide you know obviously close-ups and things like that but also just to create a sense of being in that space with him in a way that you can even really duplicate in a theater is is one of the things that i've always found really compelling about that movie on top of you know a great performance working from a, a really really strong script mm absolutely i was thinking about other one location films ed and and the ones that spring to mind and so often they sort of fall into the genre of thriller or like just yeah. like a way to build tension 
it's that sense that, you know you you can't leave and so things like 12 angry men and mm. green room which i know technically has a yeah. couple of other locations but the majority is just in this club and it is petrifying and i remember watching it kind of trying to get my own bearings to almost like mm-hmm. will it willingly trying to help the characters through um being like oh no if you go back through that door then you get back to um you know the uh, the stage or like that's the bar and all this kind of thing and uh, yeah green room is such a spectacular film but i also thought of uh, it reminded me of one of the few examples of a one location film that is uh, a rom-com so a different kind of tension two night stand with miles mm. teller and anna lee tipton which came out what oh, i feel like it was 2015 or sometime around then and anna lee tipton miles teller have a uh, intend to have a one night stand but then uh, a freak blizzard snows them in so they're stuck together and it's a really ends up being quite sweet and very and actually quite plausible um as mm. uh as films go so it's just nice to have to realize like oh no it's not just about ratcheting up tension it's just about keeping people stuck together and seeing what happens out of those circumstances mm. Yeah, I think the thing there that, that really kind of leapt out to me uh, when you were talking about that was like the importance of geography or in terms of you mm-hmm. making one location films. I think one of the things that you can do really well in, in movies where your story takes place in one location is the audience can become very aware of the layout of a place. Yes. And that can help build tension quite a bit. I, I rewatched whatever happened to baby jane this week oh wow which yeah i haven't seen in a, in a few years and i realized in this viewing it may be one of my favorite movies ever because i think it's just so well done and the performances are great but also it's a movie that i can't really watch that often because it's just like i find the ending of it just so brutally sad mm-hmm. um but one of the things about that that really struck me this time is like you get to know that big house that they live in so well you kind of learn the layout of the course of the movie you learn that the kind of big obstacle for blanche is the fact that she's in her wheelchair and she's in the top floor and she has to kind of make it down these stairs in order to get to the phone and the film does such a great job of establishing that early on you know like obviously that this is this major obstacle that she is just gonna have to tackle at one point if she's gonna get herself out of this like horrible essential hostage situation with her sister and that's one of the things that that movie does so well is like it very early on establishes this is kind of like a big empty house not that many people come in and out and if you are you know a a a screen star who has you know cannot walk then there are certain vulnerabilities that you're going to have to overcome and it does a really good job of laying that out to the audience so they know what the stakes are and you know really builds the tension when when eventually blanche does just like throw herself down the stairs because it's the only way that she's gonna have this potential chance of getting out of the situation yeah it's brutal and and similar to um i mean it's not necessarily the best um disability representation is it but uh thinking of Hmm. um thinking of rear window and misery as well yeah that kind of that so often one location does literally just mean entrapment and not necessarily, yeah, all pretty, pretty sinister. Mm. And I think also um, when we, you know, we were discussing the Ben Wheatley quarantine movie, 
the you know obviously you know isn't out yet so we don't know if it's any good but mm. I, I thought it was interesting that yeah we both kind of felt oh that seems like a perfect fit him because of down terrace but also because you know he has also made the movie free fire which was kind of like this big yeah. like amped up action movie that takes place in one warehouse and is just basically one long shootout of these like a, a weapons deal gone wrong he also made the movie high rise the jg ballard adaptation which takes place in one tower block which you know is you know is obviously has lots of different rooms but the whole point is like all these people are trapped in this one block of flats essentially and uh order is breaking down and i thought it was interesting to think that there are some filmmakers who do seem to be really attracted to i think the challenge of making a movie in a single location because it does seem like one of those things where people look at it and think you know it's like taking on an unadaptable book or whatever where mm-hmm. someone say you know like it's it's so hard to make a movie that's set in one place and make it feel like compelling and to hold the audience's attention without moving out of it the other person who i thought does this really well is of course you know uh, uh famous rapist uh, roman polanski yes <laughs> who did it quite a lot over the course of his career particularly in his early years you know like um knife in the water is a movie that takes place pretty much entirely on a boat where you have kind of like three people engaged in this kind of like psychosexual game between the three of them and so much of the tension comes from the fact that these people are clearly involved there's clearly this tension but that between the three that exists between the three of them and none of them can leave because they are on the sea um or repulsion which is not a movie that takes place entirely within an apartment but it is mainly just Catherine Deneuve in an apartment kind of like slowly unraveling or more recently his movie Carnage which again is an adaptation of a, a play called The God of Carnage which is just mainly four actors in one apartment kind of like going at each other's throats there there are you can definitely see like there are some filmmakers for whom the question of how do I wring the most kind of like tension out of these kind of like this limited tool set um, is clearly like very enticing to them and you know obviously fits for people like someone like Polanski who obviously has a very paranoid view of the world setting a movie in a single location and making it very claustrophobic and Rosemary's Baby as well actually thinking about it clearly chimes with his worldview it, it, it's hard to, to segue on from that but in terms of other people who are well different economies of scale with being problematic but I thought of Shia LaBeouf and his oh. movie slash performance art piece hashtag all my movies where mm-hmm. which which again it's one of those things where people will probably know the, the meme has kind of overshadowed <laughs> the original yeah. source material um, but it's just the camera transfixed on uh, Shia as he watches all of his films up until that point so it takes about 10 hours um, mm. and he's really he's really dressing, he's dressed for winter he's wearing like two hoodies and a coat <laughs> and at no point do I think he, he takes it off um, but he's sort of chuckling away and I think there's like other people in the cinema with him but I think it's really interesting to see a one location piece where I, I think any films about cinema or sort of set in a cinema are quite interesting. Mm. That kind of refraction of like, and that very sort of all of us with our kind of evolved monkey, you know, fairly evolved monkey brains going, I'm in a cinema too. <laughs> Watching along with it. But that's interesting in terms of making the cinema a location itself 
and yeah. you know kind of little flashes of like well you know Joan of Arc and Viva Savi and looking back at us as the audience and, and having that sort of sensation of like oh I can be maybe the screen is more like a two-way mirror and somehow I'm being watched as well is a yeah an interesting one but yeah Shia did some very bad things to get in Nymphomaniac so mm-hmm. you can you can all google that I'm not trying to give him any more airtime as warranted as everyone's you know apparently he's back in the fold now <laughs> um, mm. funny that yeah I think um, you used there talking about you know the experience of watching people watching them think reminds me I think there was a quote from Truffaut which like way he talks kind of very rhapsodically about the experience of you know being in a cinema and turning around and looking back and seeing just everyone's faces like craning up kind of like lit by the light of the screen and all kind of like having a look of like intense fascination and wonder yeah that what they're seeing on screen and I think there is something about seeing people in moments where they are unguarded yeah that i think can be really compelling in that respect because you know when you're watching a movie i mean sometimes you're you know if you're on a date or whatever whatever, you may be very (laughs) self-aware and worried that your date isn't enjoying the movie that much but i think for the most part if people are watching a movie they their attention is is on the screen and they're not really thinking about how they look to the world so there is something like very very sweet i think about you know being able to watch other people i I think you see some of that in in the abbas kurastami film shirin which is largely about people actresses specifically actresses watching a movie and it's just shots of their face as they are reacting to things yeah and that's a a really fascinating you know very odd experimental movie for him sort of towards the end of his, his career but there is so much kind of beauty to be found in just you know watching Juliette Binoche reacting to something that we can't see and us having to draw our own inferences from what she's experiencing uh obviously as, as you said earlier there's a lot of um thrillers in the one in the one location movie kind of like subgenre because it's just something that it lends itself very nicely to that kind of uh, approach of filmmaking you know if you're trapping people in one room it can be very easy it's not easy but you know like it's very naturally lends itself to claustrophobia and tension and paranoia and things like that but there are some movies that i've tried to do it for for comedy one of the ones i have on my list here uh, was clerks oh yeah which, uh, oh. T- technically a two location movie in that there's two shops <laughs> but you know it's two shops right next to each other, door to each other and that's a movie that i think where the claustrophobia really fits the theme which is people being trapped in this like dead-end job uh dante and randall being stuck working in a convenience store and a a video store respectively and the real sense of just inertia in their lives of being trapped in this one place not being able to get out but that's a movie that i think really is 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 just really funny with how much they are trapped and in the observations that you know kevin smith clearly kind of put together over his many years working as a convenience store clerk and putting all those on screen and really kind of like giving life to those observations in a way that still works really really well you know i i like many have drifted away from kevin smith uh, as a filmmaker over the years but i do feel there is such a wonderful authenticity to clerks and a large part of that is you know he's filming in the actual place where he worked yeah. <laughs> and he is like you know making this movie that is very personal to him very much reflective of a period of his life where you know his 
possibilities were limited to you know within the confines of this this one small part of new jersey but it also doesn't feel cheap it feels like the epicenter of a community like Mm, how when when you are just living kind of where you grew up and you know everyone and i would say smith keeps coming back to that like more rats i'd say is almost a one location movie um tusk and red state kind of yeah um and clerks too as well for obvious reasons is you know that one the one branch of movies um, mm. But he does manage to find all the different angles and ancillary sort of bits around it. But your overriding memory is, oh no, it's just this one, this one place, um, mm. because it is kind of simultaneously kind of all all they have. And it, and I think what is so impressive is he manages to simultaneously show how limiting that is, but also so expansive, like it contains the whole world. Yeah, it's definitely a movie that I liked the first time I saw it. I saw it when I was like 16, I think, um, before I ever had really had a job. And then watching it again after having worked at the showroom um, in Sheffield, the cinema there, like I suddenly like, related to it in a way that I hadn't before because so much of my experience at the showroom was you know, being sat behind the box office there and having a familiarity with the various customers who came in and just getting to know their eccentricities and of this kind of like you know like all the people that i worked with like hanging out and talking to them so much of the idle fun conversations that were had on the box office you know really rang true you know in terms of like watching clerks thinking oh yeah that is basically what you know life between the age of 22 and 25 (laughs) were for me in terms of my uh, my working life and the other example I had of a movie that isn't a thriller um, is uh, uh, My Dinner with Andre. Of course, oh, the yes. Louis, yes, yes, yes. Louis Malle film starring Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory in which they just sit and have a chat and have a meal. And it's uh, really great. And, you know, just like wonderful seeing these two actors who have tremendous kind of like skill and control of their craft and clearly enjoy each other's company so much just sitting in a... Uh, sitting in a restaurant and talking for an hour and a half. I've still never seen it, Ed. This is this is my <laughs> uh, uh, my admission here, but I will never not think of that episode of The Simpsons where Martin is at the arcade <laughs> playing the My Dinner with Andre video game. Goes, tell me more. <laughs> mm, yeah, I can't remember what the third command is, but it's like tell me more and Bon Mo. Uh, yeah, the Simpsons. Simpsons used to be very, very great at fake arcade games. There's that. There's the Waterworld one. Yes. Uh, can I play Devil's Advocate for a moment? <laughs> <laughs> My Dinner Andre is just like one of those movies where, which really does kind of illustrate how you can tell, like more or less any story in one location if you're just really good, <laughs> as 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 uh, Louis Mal and Andre Gregory and uh, Wallace Shawn were. You know, they're able to make these kind of like philosophical, funny, kind of loopy conversations that happen into this like really engrossing thing. And so much of it is down to just how well the flow of the conversation is edited, how good the performances are. And I think that's a, a really great example of how, of the potential of a one location movie. Oh, for sure. Like the minutiae of all of their mm. 
kind of responses and how it's minded with Andre is like, oh, it's just a conversation, but it's not. Like, it's all about those non-verbal moments of being in a really sort of intimate setting with someone that it picks mm. up. Yeah, the bits, the bits what I have seen when I'm not chuckling about the Simpsons reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also just kind of like trying to tease out what you can of their relationship outside of the film because mm. there's clearly some tension to it as well and i think that that's something as well that is often really great about some of the movies that we've talked about and you know like the invitation and things like that where so much you, you're you're given so little information that you would usually get if you had a movie that was set in like a bunch of different scenes in different locations that you have to try and infer a lot of things from just how people react to each other in the performances so i feel like that's one of the things that really makes and breaks a one location movie it's just how well the actors are able to tell you things without saying it out loud which again also to kind of like bring it back to tape is kind of like one of the failings of that movie is it literally is just a movie about three people discussing the thing that happened between them and it doesn't really leave a lot of room for people to kind of like tease out the details absolutely so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Apologies, it is on Amazon. And I know we're all trying Ooh. our very best, boo. But it's it's worth it for this. So, Bossy Bottom, Zoe Coombs-Ma. I saw this show at the Edinburgh Fringe last year and it was something that made me honk with laughter throughout but it was a real kind of slow burner in kind of realizing quite how important and brilliant it is in that it has a serious point to make but it does it with the best kind of comic repetition to the point of it's like you know ad nauseam ad absurd absurdium kind of sort of mechanic underneath it uh so technically i guess it's one location in recorded theater but it's probably my one of my favorite stand-up shows of the past five years and zoe Coombsmar is just incredible as a performer and seeing it being performed in i'm not exactly sure which theater it is um but this huge space having seen her in this kind of like tiny tavern in edinburgh fringe just goes to show how she just brings it regardless you know she scales up she scales down but she never does anything less than her absolute best so that's bossy bottom by zoe coombsma great uh, i'll also recommend a recording of a show that takes place in one location uh, i'm gonna recommend american utopia the spike lee directed recording of david uh, burns show american utopia that was on broadway last year and some of this year i believe and obviously closed down because of, of covid but they were able to film uh you know put together a film based on several performances before that all happened and it's just so wonderful i'm a huge fan of david byrne and um stop making sense it's one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time so i had very high expectations for him doing another performance movie and uh, it's it's sometimes it's hard to avoid the comparison because there are some songs there in both um naive melody uh the prettiest song i've ever heard is uh, included in both but the staging and the production and the cinematography and the choreography all of that sort of stuff is so wildly different that you know comparisons you know are, don't aren't warranted although the movie does um thank jonathan demi in the closing credits so you know like obviously there's some of that dna in there uh, unavoidably um but it's so wonderful it's it's a mixture of david byrne 
singing and you know having these groups of of dancers and performers around him kind of like bringing life to some of these songs and him addressing the audience and telling these kind of like funny sometimes very kind of like serious uh stories from his life sometimes contextualizing the songs and how they were written sometimes just kind of opining on the state of the world and you know kind of like bringing those back to the joy of his music and I found it to be just this really wonderful joyous experience musically visually it's just so so great and uh it's on HBO now it just aired last night and is now available to watch on demand on HBO Max I'm sure it'll be available to watch somewhere in the UK at some point and people should check it out because it is one of the cultural highlights of the year for me if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from you.